Well, this is I have the hardest job in this entire festival because I am meant to make Pete talk about practical things. Yes. So <laughs> I thought I would I would start at first just to give a little sense of where I come from. Yeah. Right. So I work at Queen's University and I'm a sociologist, so I'm looking at Pete's stuff from a social scientific of religion perspective, really. And I first um, encountered Icon nearly 20 years ago now when I was working on my PhD and I was doing my PhD in Dublin and I was studying evangelicalism and conflict in Northern Ireland. So I was interested in the, the role evangelicalism had played in the conflict here and how evangelical identities were changing, perhaps um, as people were critiquing the kind of right-wing evangelical tradition and trying to build peace um, through, you know, reworking that tradition, whatever. And through that process, um, I started studying a group called Zero Twenty Eight. Yeah. So a lot of ICON people were, <laughs> were involved in Zero Twenty Eight, which uh, is the the uh, telephone area code for Northern Ireland. That's why it was called that because it's bringing everybody together, right? And everybody in Zero Twenty Eight kept telling me, "Oh, you got to go to this ICON thing. You got to go to this ICON thing." So I kind of accidentally started studying ICON because I was interested in evangelical activism and how evangelical identities were changing, becoming more moderate and contributing to, to peace um, and so forth. So the, the initial process, I suppose, I was studying when I was looking at ICON was how identity was changing. And the thing that struck me was, um, obviously, I was studying evangelicalism, but so many people were from that um, evangelical background. And the concept of God, I suppose, that you've been describing over the, the course of this festival and through much of your career is very... It's a modern God, but it's also a very evangelical God. So the whole icon critique, I thought, was caught up in um, critiquing that God and everybody kind of going through a deconversion um, mm. type of experience. Yes. And then um, going on from that, you know, I'm interested in the, um, you know, the social effect, how religion functions and affects society and affects politics. So I was also interested in how the activism of these different evangelical groups um, was making a difference in Northern Ireland. So... Icon, um, for that that part of it, I was a bit puzzled at the time, right? Yes. <laughs> and I think some of the critique of that... Because I don't think Icon fits <laughs> with any of that. I can't think, I keep going, yeah. yeah but they were the, and, and some of what, what Phil was saying last night about, well, how does this you know, matter in the real world was like, there's a question I don't think I resolved in the part of my PhD dissertation about, mm. about, about Icon, as it were. So um, all, the, I suppose, that by way of... Um, kind of maybe asking an initial question about um, maybe that um, process of a identity change and how it happened and how that fed into um, the creation of ICON. You know, what were people kind of going through? Yeah. And it is interesting that your work was in evangelicalism because most people coming to ICON were either evangelical, post-evangelical, but kind of in that kind of world. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't able to articulate then exactly what I was doing, but it was a certain form of critique of that or moving through that into something else. Um, so, yeah, so that definitely is where Icon began in many ways. And taking, I suppose, for me, my first book was all about mysticism because it, because that's the first step within a religion is how to get people to open up to doubt and unknowing is actually introduce a bit of mysticism. So early icon was almost introducing mysticism into evangelicalism, but that was only a gateway drug to um, kind of a more radical position. So yeah, so I can see why you took an interest. But you also, this is what I love about talking to Gladys is because you also have different 
at language and terminology mm, coming yes, from sociology. Yeah. And as I say, you're studying it primarily in terms of its social effect, who the people were, the going. I mean, you're actually asking people what they got out of it. But don't ask people what they get out of it. Ask me what they get out of it. I'll tell you. Don't listen to people. But yeah, you were you were actually interviewing people. You were looking at it in terms of its connection to wider religion. And um, so yeah, so yeah, I always I was always interested in because I'm always like you did work in emerging church. And I was always like, Icon's not emerging church. So what do you think about that? Is Icon emerging church to you? Well, myself and Gerardo Marty have written an entire book about the emerging church that opens with a vignette of an icon. (laughs) So you're in the book, whether you like it or not. You know, and I mean, part of the reason... I suppose we were at that stage because Emerging Church was wide at that point. Well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, you've told the story before. Many people at Icon said this to me. You never had heard of the Emerging Church till people started telling you you were part of it, right, Mm -hmm. when you went to Greenbelt um, and so forth. But the Emerging Church, you know, it emerged out of evangelicalism. So there's a similar origin story there with Icon and the, the wider American movement, you know. So, um, that's part of the reason for the inclusion and also, um, you know, when Pete was saying about the social processes, that's what I'm interested in studying. You know, the way groups of people form new religious communities, that is what the emerging church was doing. So the social process of what ICON was doing is quite similar to groups that have very different uh, conceptions of God and Christ's divinity and, and all this, all these issues, very different than ICON has. But the social process was very similar in terms of collectives and trying to be creative and critiquing the evangelical tradition. So all those structural similarities are there. So it looked very similar on the surface as well. Yeah, that's mm. and that's true. Actually, yeah. there was a lot of in terms of the musical style, a lot of candles, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sitting in circles or whatever. There yeah. was yeah. Um, and for me, some of that then hid. Like at first, actually, when you wrote that book, there were so many similarities. I think the differences began to arise over the last five or ten years. Mm-hmm. And the emerging would you even say the emerging church exists anymore in any shape or form? Well, um, I've, I have I stopped studying it, right? So <laughs> I don't think it's someone that's actually paying that much of attention anymore. But to me, also the thing about the emerging church was that, you know, most in the sociology of religion, people like to measure religious success or whatever by how well the institution produces itself Mm -hmm. and the emerging church is to a certain degree or was to a certain degree anti-institutional so Mm -hmm. the point was not to produce an institution that would produce itself it would be maybe to influence other institutions but then as a sociologist that's really hard to measure if this movement that kind of appeared for a while and disappeared is did it continue to influence throughout the wider yeah you know denominations um, and traditions and so forth which i suspect it has um, but again, I've not yeah. um, researched it. Um, yeah. Currently, I'm doing Irish stuff. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, for, for a lot of you know the emerging church and uh, what it was, and the way I see it is that yeah, so it's died for a number or died as a movement for in some respects, and mostly went into either progressive mm-hmm. kind of traditional. Um, some people went into process theology. That was a tiny thing. Trip fuller of you. Um, some stayed with an evangelicalism, I guess. Yeah. And then there was this radical wing, which is what I was trying to represent. Mm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we're still going. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but the, my, my, my worry with the emerging church was that, that there was nothing theologically, like it was still this traditional notion of like a, a type of progress of history and movement towards kind of this 
this wholeness and all of that language was still there like that was ultimately my critique of it yes um, and there was a different conception of doubt um, yeah, as well very much i so. suppose and it's almost like you, you could you doubt it in the sense of you don't have insight into the absolute yeah. so that's 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 epistemological humility where you don't have access to the real which of course we don't know everything but yes what i'm interested in the hegelian sense is oh no no, no it's not that you don't know the truth, the truth doesn't know itself. And that's different. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, but I have to get you back mm. to the practical piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> that's, my, that's your job. That's, my that's job. your job. Yeah. So, because one of the things that also has interested me about the story of Icon, I suppose, is it actually started with the practical from what many people yeah. told me. And that's yes. kind of later, the um, conceptual justification was brought in by you. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, if you're starting with the practical, so maybe if you just talk, I spoke a little bit about how you know what the practical looked like, how you created an icon event. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm going because <laughs> I suddenly was going to go to theory there. Right? <laughs> Very practically, what was beautiful was basically a pile of us. John, who was was there from the beginning, would go to the bar once a week, and sometimes it would be that an idea, like someone would think of uh, a title or an, a concept, and often I came with an idea. That was me. Or sometimes it would just be an image. So Johnny would come and he would go, oh, you know, I just they really look beautiful if the menagerie was full of broken wine glasses and all with wine poured into the wine glasses and we were pouring the wine in and we'd like start there and then this the gathering would build somebody would go that reminds me of like you know this idea of communion but like a broken communion and maybe we could do a sins of the father that became the sins of the father where we talked about where the god had sinned against us and so one, week one, we would throw around some interesting ideas. Johnny would often say, let's do something that will offend us. What, what would we find difficult? That was his thing. And, and we would think about it, have an idea, meet the next week, and we'd begin to flesh it out. Third week, we'd give out jobs. Padraig, can you do some poetry? You know, Johnny, can you do some ambient music? Um, and then the fourth week, we all turned up at the menagerie and, and put the event on. And that, that was the very practical what we did once a month. So that was a transformance art. And then there were the decentering practices. And the decentering practices, I'm going to use all know, but the Last Supper, uh, Atheism for Lent, the Amiga Project, Evangelism Project. Yeah. And those were, those were the decentering projects that also happened mm-hmm. on and off. Yes, and I I had the um, the privilege, I suppose, of sitting in on some icon meetings as part of my research. And I was I'm not. Oh, the yeah, most... What was it like from your perspective? <laughs> I'm, I am not the most sort of artistically creative person, and I, I was just kind of like, oh my goodness, these people are you know in my mind, I think these people are really really talented. You know, yeah. no no wonder these events look so well. I mean, impressive, really. I, I suppose mm-hmm. so. The process for me was like this is really amazing, but I also thought you know your average group of people is not going to sit around doing this and come up with something like that, which is perhaps a problem. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm currently thinking about how I do transformance art that's, that is more sustainable mm-hmm. than what we did in Bella. So we had a kind of, a, we got an incredible group of people together. I think anyone can do it, but, um, but it is harder work. It's once yeah. a month. We did it maybe nine times a year, took a few months off, did one festival in England once a year. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was so like Johnny, Johnny was great. Like he'd come in and go like, it'd be amazing if we took a picture of everybody jumping so that we had them all hovering and maybe get a hundred balloons all hovering because the, they're weighted perfectly. So they're all in the room together. And then we could do something about 
like we're hovering between life and death. And yeah, so it's brilliant. It's something because a beautiful yeah. thing can just arise out of that. But um, it's hard to do that every week or yeah. every month. Yeah. Um, so my thing is actually what I think transformance art can look like is more like just a standard music talk, some sort of ritual, and then hanging out and having a drink together, like once a week. But but all of it is in the service of. Um, it's like so in psychoanalysis when I if you're my analyst I come to you right um, the first thing I do is like Gladys you're just a normal person like anybody else right why why am I paying you you feel like you got some expert on this right maybe you've got a bit of learning but you're also just a normal person that's called the imaginary and analysis doesn't really start there but then without realizing that maybe eventually I start to treat you as my mother I, without knowing it, you become a symbolic figure for me. I say to you, Gladys, you're going to hate me when I tell you this, right? But what I did last week. And you'll be going, why do you think, I'd, why do you think that? Why do you think I would judge you? And I go, well, my mum would have hated it or whatever. Yeah. So without knowing it, now, I'm, now you're a screen upon which I'm projecting my inner objects, my inner relationships. And then the third stage is called the real is when I'm not just projecting onto you you've you're somehow inside my subjectivity you're in my dreams i'm dreaming of my analyst and you're you're i'm, I'm dreaming of my mother but it's actually you and you're weirdly in there at that point analysis can really start working because i've you're now in some weird sense the personification of say my mother's passed away but she's still alive as an object in me but you're not acting in response you're in the same way in fact you're not saying what she would say in fact you're just acting impotent you're saying nothing you're not judging me at all you don't care and my image can change in the same way in in an icon gathering you go in and you've got musicians and artists and comedians and all of that and they're just regular people like anybody else but then without realizing that you go enough you start to project your notion of ultimate reality onto the liturgical structure. You don't know who you are, but it's like if a minister gives you the finger, right? It's not the minister's God, right? <laughs> it seems more weird because they're in garb. So, and then the third level is when that liturgical structure actually um, uh, hooks into your subjectivity. And the point is, I go wanting the absolute to fix everything. And what I get back is something impotent. I get songs about brokenness and doubt and unknowing. I, so I don't get back the God that I'm projecting out. That transforms my inner relation to that. And then you're free. Yes. And that whole idea of the sustainability of it. And, yeah. you know, you're talking about every week it needs to be a practice. You know, the level of creativity and energy and resources needed to do like the main icon event is really, I think, ultimately unsustainable mm. <laughs> for, for most groups. Um, and then I suppose there's also the issue of um, maintaining a relationship with institutional churches. Do you do that or do you not do that? And again, that was a question that came up a lot in the wider study Gerardo and I did of the emerging church um, in the States. And there really were different perspectives on that. How are you anti-institutional? Should you be anti-institutional or what kind of relationship um, should these groups have with, with wider um religious um, traditions and denominations and so forth. So I suppose another thing that strikes me about um, why, you know, a, a group like Icon works or why a collective works for some people is because it is drawing on a common reservoir of um, Christian ideas, you mm. know. Um, so how, how is that re relationship maintained or 
what's the best way to do that or not? Yes, yes. I mean, yes, yeah, a biggie. Um, <laughs> I, I, so I am an institutionalist for, through and through. Um, and by what I mean by that is we're liturgical creatures. Whether we go to play poker once a month, go to the coffee shop once a week with friends, we have these liturgical structures that either help us confront life or help us avoid confronting life. So pop music generally helps you avoid confronting <laughs> life. And getting drunk generally helps you avoid confronting <laughs> life. Um, and, uh, you know, loud music at a nightclub might help do that. But the same liturgical technologies don't, if you listen to a singer-songwriter, that, like this music we're listening to tonight, it can help you touch a part of yourself that you could not otherwise have allowed yourself to touch. So you just you just had a terrible breakup and you go and you listen to someone sing and you're listening to them and then you're able to face that. And instead of getting drunk and forgetting your problems, <laughs> you have a couple of tricks and you loosen up and you talk about your problems. And, um, you know, instead of going to a loud, loud pop music to forget, you're listening to a singer-songwriter, you're in a little pub like this talking. That's a liturgy that helps you confront yourself. So for me, we need institutions like like those regular places we go and that's what icon is the other thing is this is the strategy right is <laughs> if this is going to work and i think we're in a lot of trouble in the world and want if this is going to work doing one or two groups just will do nothing yeah having a few hundred people or a few thousand people does nothing you need it's you need a system let's imagine this crazy thing let's imagine that there is a system in place around the world where millions of people groups are meeting in once a week, sitting together in hundreds, doing some sort of ritualistic activities and preaching and songs, right? And that system is something they're part of, potentially their whole life, and they bring their kids to you and they'll be empowered. <laughs> and imagine that exists. And then imagine you could inject these ideas into that system. Then, and, 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 it's, it, it, and the host takes it, right? The host doesn't reject it. It's very, very difficult, right? But if the host accepts these ideas then you've already got a, a, a whole system and that's that's what power theology is trying to do infiltrate infiltrate <laughs> yes but being very honest about it that's why it's not a secret right you're very honest and, and going and literally saying but it's also key like the whole point of last night was this death of god is not an anti-religious notion it starts with saint paul like literally the notion of the death of god and nietzsche which he knew, Nietzsche is the new St. Paul. Nietzsche is a reincarnation of the Apostle Paul. Basically. Now, Nietzsche, it was one of his few mistakes, as he didn't see it. But, but he, for Nietzsche, the death of God was an event that everybody had to experience. Just like for the Apostle Paul, the death of God is an event that everyone has to go through. Hegel said it. Nietzsche said it. And, um, and so it is connected. It's a theological position. It's a philosophical one as well, but it's a theological position. And I think the host can take it because... Because it's it's part of the narrative already. It's just um, the church is Gnostic. You know, it's all it's got this notion of a whole complete God above or whatever. Well, and I mean, the yeah. church is very diverse. And I mean, mm. you know, in its Catholic and Orthodox and various other incarnations, which I still, I hear you talking, it's and still the... you're more pro-church even... than me, aren't you? Because I, I don't think they're all... Right? Anyway, no, I, you're, no. There's, that's still the evangelical Protestant God church, you know? Oh, yeah. There are, there are diff, you know, there are different yeah. conceptions. So it's, I get where you're coming from, but it's, you know, it's more complicated, or, yes. you know, um, well, due to do that you, diversity. Yeah. Where would you say these ideas, as someone, do you are in the already existing church? Well, I mean, I think some of the, um, like, 
I'm most familiar with Protestant Catholic traditions, right? I don't know much about um, Orthodox and so forth. But there is room in some, particularly, I think, the, the Catholic or the Anglican. And this may be, you know, we were talking earlier about how some in the emerging church have gone back to those traditional, yes. old-style um, liturgies and approaches. You know, like um, the the emphasis on, you know, Darkness is my only friend. The, the, the these sort of things. That's that one's in my head because um, I tune into a, a, a Compline online group now during lockdown in a local Catholic parish, and that's read every week. Mm. You're reminded that darkness is my only friend. You know, yeah. so you're getting that. You know, and there's also maybe in some ways a more mystical approach in mm. those um, non-Protestant <laughs> traditions that maybe resonates. More and I know the mystic thing isn't your thing, yeah. but like you know, I've heard you say that was a step towards. Yes, it is. The same <laughs> you know, time, yeah, yeah. But you're getting so it's it's you know if you're talking about infiltrating the church, there's you know different yeah. levels of, of infiltration. <laughs> and by the way, I haven't been very successful at it. What because yeah, was what I find is goes a certain way, a certain state, like and and people go go. But the problem is then when anxiety comes back up, um, people go back to the to the um, what. Tillich would call it superstition, you know. To, yeah. To, so it's, it's uh, yeah, I haven't been, I, I've had a few, thought I was having successes um, with even some mega churches and stuff, and then they end up just becoming either normal or going into the new age or into, you know, some sort of ersatz god, like, uh, you know, say, into, uh, yeah, there's lots of ersatz gods. And I suppose the other thing, Pete, you learn as a sociologist is that nobody actually believes everything they're supposed to believe, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, the kind of the, the people who are going along to these institutions, we don't know the half of what they're really actually thinking or what they mm. believe or what they're taking on. I think there's also a tendency, you know, for church leaders or whatever um, to make assumptions, professional Christians to make assumptions about what the people yes. sitting there actually think, you know, and that, you, that, could, that is both, that can be exciting, actually. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's another yes. point to bring into it. And that's, um, oh, and that's interesting because in a way for ICON is what people believe is not important. Now, and I, for me, like in psychoanalysis, it doesn't matter when you come to and ask what you believe. Um, it's a form of life, not what you believe, but how you believe what you believe. So I don't know if that, so I do think confessional churches have doctrines that believe in like in God and Jesus. Yeah. They have lots of beliefs that I think, you know, that's very different from what I'm doing. Whereas it doesn't matter what you believe. Belief is just a contingent thing that's related to, you know, yeah. what, how you were brought up and whatever. But how you believe what you believe is where the radical move is. Yes, actually, that, that brings me back to the first time I interviewed you, Pete. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I think this is like, this is nearly 20 years ago. Um, so it was at some coffee shop on the Lisburn Road, I think. But that was one of the things that still sticks in my mind from the interview. It's not, it was some pretty similar to what you just said there. It's yeah. not what you believe it's whether the belief makes you a better person i think is the way you put it then so you're like yeah, so if it's a bit now, yeah, but yeah, but, so yeah. But if methodism makes you a better person you know be a methodist kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know what you, what you had said at the time and um i suppose the other thing that's always come out for me through your work is this idea that you actually believe what you do you know the, you're believing you think you believe something right. but you don't actually believe it unless that's what you're doing and to me that's actually a terrifying idea because <laughs> you know if you kind of look at what you're doing in your life um is it really are you maybe to put in the terms we've you've used um for this festival are you living up to that freedom that you have to yeah. 
to you know to be truly really truly living if you're being judged only by your actions in the world that's that's that, that's a lot tougher than evangelical yes. protestantism in some ways <laughs> <Yeah>. isn't it <laughs> i mean that's key because like for me and this is where i'm influenced by psychoanalysis but the idea that we don't know what we believe i mean that's very key for me is you know if, I, if you want to if i want to know what you believe the last person to ask is you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't know, like, right? <laughs> uh, you know, you don't believe maybe in ghosts until it's late at night and there's uh, a wind howling outside, and the, but you do. You don't think you do, but you do. That's what I mean. That's what Nietzsche means by the repression of the death of God is you believe in the sharks under the bed. I mean, you say you don't believe it, yeah. but I can see that you do by your symptoms. What I would say now, I used to say your beliefs are in your actions. I think I was inaccurate. I think your beliefs are in your symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, th- so, if you want to know what someone believes and, and how they, f- you look at their, their outburst, you look at the very, the very point when someone says, that's not me, that's the truth. <laughs> that's why analysts are always looking for Freudian slips. Mm-hmm. The very moment you say, oh, I, I didn't mean to say my mother. They're like, okay, well, that's, yeah, I know you didn't mean it. So that's the truth spoke. It's not your intentionality. That's the truth. <laughs> and that's very key for me. So a lot of religion for me is not about telling you what to believe. It's about helping you f- discover your beliefs. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my work is about how do you discover your beliefs? How do you confront your beliefs that you hate yourself? I know somebody recently, they got some, they were drinking too much and uh, they got someone to hate them. And I realized that they hate themselves, but, but they can't. But what they do is they want their friends to hate them. They say the most horrible things and they externalize their own self-hatred to get other people to hate them. So they, it's called projective identification, but where now they can get their their belief back to them without knowing it's their belief. And it was very sad to see that they're literally because making people hate them because that's how they feel about themselves. So for me, that person gradually helping them realize, no, you hate yourself. You don't know this. You hate yourself. And you're getting that person to hate you because that's how you feel about yourself. And, and I mean, actually listening to you say that, um, you're trying to bring it back to the practical again no. in, in some ways, you know, if you're taken people through a process like this, through these liturgical events, you know, this is potentially terrifying yes. for people. Um, do you need people with specialist <laughs> training to be pastorally responsible in such a, a situation? Yeah, I think so. That's why I do a lot of theory, a lot of practice. Like it's, I, there's a lot of technical things that, that are useful to know. Um, you know, it's, uh, and because here's the thing, by the way, this is why you can't meditate your way to the unconscious, by the way. This is why you need a third, right? Like meditation and drugs all have their place. But the reason, if you're a Freudian, the reason why you can't get to the unconscious is because the unconscious isn't deep within you. So you can go deep within you in meditation and that's nice, but actually your unconscious is on the surface. And what happens is I, like in the example I used of this woman, she needs a, she is projecting onto you. She's making you, if it says me, I'm making you hate me. I'm poking you. I'm making you despise me because I despise myself. I don't know that. Now, if you're trained, you don't respond. You don't get caught in what's called counter transference. You don't get angry. You feel it and you go, my goodness, you're trying to make me angry with you. Why? Yeah. And boom, it suddenly breaks. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're not trained and you don't know how counter transference is, you just, you will, what, what's called projective counter identification, you will become what the person wants you to be. You're so intolerant. You're so angry. You're so this, you're so that. I'm not angry. There you go. You know, <laughs> I'm not angry. Right. And suddenly I've made you, you know, yeah. into what I want you to be so I can project that anger into you. So yes, there is a certain amount of training to, and a lot of the training is just to, to allow the transference 
on and realize that they're telling you their truth. Everyone's telling the truth all the time. And I listen to how you're making me feel. And then, yeah, I just feed it back. So, yeah, there is training involved. But yeah. It's not a lot, but it's, it's more just... And the, be, the basic training is to go through it yourself. So I always recommend people go through psychoanalysis because that's, I think that's a good basic. Yeah. You know, you go through it, you feel it yourself, you, you get into conversation with your own unconscious, you start to realise how that works. Like, the people we attack are often a repressed part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's a basic thing that people don't know. When they're attacking someone on Twitter, they're often attacking their youth, your younger self, right? Yeah. They're attacking some part of their repressed self. And um, if you can help them see that, it's very beneficial. So for people who are um, watching now then, and they might have started their own community or they're thinking of starting their own community or they're wondering about hanging in their church mm. or how, what would you say in terms of what do you do? How do you make those <laughs> decisions? Yeah. Um, are, you, are you thinking like people who want to set something up or just uh, like leaders or are you kind of thinking of? Well, I mean, again, I'm just trying to bring yeah. it back to the practical. The practical you know, yeah, if, yeah. if these ideas are, you know, if your person sitting watching and these ideas resonate with you, mm. how do you express it? And then, Okay, yeah. So here's, here's a good example. This, and this is where Johnny's amazing and he should, we should do some stuff on Zoom about this sometime. Mm. Um, is that, you know, you could, for example, if you're, if you're in a confessional church, yeah. And say you're a musician or you're a pastor, you, you might go, listen, you know, we're going to explore the Psalms. The Psalms are full of anger and aggression and doubt and all of that. And then you do a couple of sermons on that. And then you go, like, by the way, there's some local musicians. I know I heard them play at this coffee shop and they sing all about love and hate and desire and doubt. And so I've just invited them to come and do some music. Um, as part. Of, so you set it up with the Psalms or whatever. Yeah. But basically you're, you're starting very subtly mm-hmm. to create an environment where these ideas can be expressed so i think you can do it within within those contexts yeah. most of the time you'll get kicked out eventually you know that's usually <laughs> what happens um, and uh, you probably have to do it yourself but this is we're trying to do a movement here like this is i we you have to do this you can do this you can set these up yourself right and i and we'll help you do it um uh, you might be able to do it in communities that you already have or start one yourself you know and that, that actually intrigues me about, um, you know, you mentioned the Psalms there, but the use of, of biblical resources, because I suppose one of the things from my study of uh, religion conflict here is that the kind of the religious peace builders who are most effective were the ones that were able to take the resources from the tradition and rework it, critique it, yeah. give something new. So like they're, you know, the Konai, that the group uh, locals will be familiar with, that's basically what they did <laughs> to yeah. critique Ian Paisley's evangelicalism. So, but uh, that the importance of, you know, using those biblical resources or whatever resources yeah. to kind of to do that critique i think it cannot be lost sight of in the philosophy oh, absolutely <laughs> well, that's the thing is like you know that story of the guy who calls on the side of the road an american and says to this farmer um like i'm looking for dublin can you show me the way and the guy says well it wouldn't start here right <laughs> stupid right it's like you have to start with what you got like i said like you know and that's the hegelian thing as well is there's no right place to start except where you're at whatever the resources you have and whatever tradition you have and then go as deep into it as possible and the idea is when you go really deeply into it it will collapse into something more interesting etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah taking and that's what icon did we took the resources of evangelicalism yeah, yeah. and then and that was our way in and and i still use some of that that language yeah. and because actually i do think it's very important because i'm very influenced by the the western philosophical yeah. tradition but i do it less so than someone like jay baker 
Jay Baker uses very Christian language to mm. do exactly this stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then some yeah. other people will use not religious language at all mm. to do this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting as to whether this will be a reformation within a certain Christianity, mm. um, which I think it might be, but it doesn't, ha- yeah, doesn't have to be. Yes, because there's a certain, um, again, the demographics from the study in this, there's a certain lack of appeal outside, mm. <laughs> you know, the people who come from the, the evangelical background or tradition. I mean, it's not entirely absent, but, yeah. you know, that's just the, the demographic uh, reality. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, where I'm getting the most attraction, right, and Phil Harrison, uh, who was here last night, yeah. and I, was to- I remember talking to him about this, it's from people who, right, don't go to church, have no belief in God as a being above and or whatever, yeah. none of that. And then whenever I talk to them, I go, well, well, what I mean by the death of God and what I mean by Christology is the idea that that the universe is not at one with itself and that we have to enjoy that kind of conflict. And that's that's where change comes from. And they're going like, well, I can resonate with that. And they're like, yeah. And actually what I'm finding is, in fact, at Wake, there's more and more people come to Wake who don't even know this is coming from the Christian tradition mm. at all. And go like, I just heard you on some podcast and like like this notion of, and like, I didn't know. It's like, what are those people who go to church, you know? It's this, and I think that it's, that it's good news for everybody. It's like, because you don't need to believe in God. None of this is about believing in a God. It's about believing in the death of God, i.e. it's about going, oh, yeah. There's something about doubt, ambiguity, and complexity that is salvatory. There's something about that in a world where it's always about get the next iPhone, get the next car, have enough money, get enough fame, do this, do that, and then it will be amazing. Right? The only, the, so fantasy, <laughs> fantasy by its nature, as you see it in Hollywood, is fantasy doesn't give you what you desire. Fantasy allows you to desire what you desire. So the whole point of fantasy is that you just, like, have you seen the film Greenland at all? Like, nope. It's a typical <laughs> typical disaster movie, right? But the whole world's about to be destroyed. This family unit, they don't desire each other anymore. The husband and the wife don't desire each other, whatever. And then this world destructive event happens. And the whole movie, of course, is just about how to reintroduce desire back into the family unit. So at the very end of the movie, they desire each other again. And the world is destroyed, but that's okay. That's the fantasy. They have to have the disaster to to begin to, to be able to desire what they desire again. So you have like a star who's got loads of money. They get what they desire. They no longer desire what they desire. So they have to fantasize, this might get taken away from me. I might not get the next job. I might, so as they can begin to desire what they desire again reason why I'm saying that is whenever you realize, oh yeah, it's not about getting what I want. It's actually positioning myself in an interesting way in relation to what I want is where the, the satisfaction of life is. That resonates with people. And, going like, and I can be in a community where I can find freedom from the frenetic pursuit of happiness. See, in Los, the reason why I went to Los Angeles, most religious place I've ever been in the world, every corner there's somebody who's promising certainly satisfaction. You do in the happiness, if you make enough money, do some yoga poses, take some molly, do this, that. I'm not against any of those things, but none of them work as in to give you wholeness and completeness because that's a fantasy. What? So I go to LA preaching unhappiness and people love it because <laughs> you need freedom from this need to be amazing and um and then weirdly in that embrace of the darkness you find the light this is dialectics by the way Dial- when you're presented with two options the light and the dark we always go for the light the wide the narrow we go for the wide the good the bad we go for the good right dialectics is or we try to find a middle ground dialectics is always a choice for the worst 
When you have two choices in front of you, the light and the dark, you go into the dark. The chaos or the cosmos go into the chaos. Why? Because you go into the dark, you'll find the light.